Chapter 8 Intercession Keiko stared at her mug of oolong tea leaves slowly swirling in a circular motion. Once they began to slow down, she swirled the mug again to speed up their motion. After repeating this action numerous times, she set the mug on her desk and looked out her office window. From where she sat, she saw Brooke with her legs kicked up on her desk, still looking at resumes. Beyond her was the currently empty desk, where the administrative assistant was to sit once she was released from her current assignment and the cyber station at the far end of her department. Sitting in front of the cutting-edge computer equipment and numerous monitors were two recently reassigned agents. One was directly from the Homeland Security Cyber Counterterrorism Department, and the other was from a comparable group from the NSA. The two men were completely consumed in their work and seemed to work together flawlessly. Keiko smiled. It's a good match, she thought. Brooke is doing an excellent job in putting the team together. When both Agent Jackson from Homeland Security and Agent Romero from the NSA joined the group several days ago, it had taken them only a few hours to get acquainted with their new positions, supervisor and assistant director. After that, it was all business. Brooke found them too cool and emotionless, but they were the perfect choices for computer nerds. They would come into the office each day, have a cup of coffee, catch up on sports with each other, check with Brooke for any new daily assignments, say hello to Keiko, and then lose themselves at the cyber station. Once in a while, they would interact with each other to exchange what they've uncovered at their computer, but typically they lost sight of everything and everyone around them. Picking up her mug and drinking deeply, Keiko decided to get back to work. She pulled her laptop closer and opened the report on the latest. Investigative results on identifying the group associated with Jensung. So far, there were no leads. It was as if there were no indirect evidence of their existence and no plausible physical evidence to corroborate any of their actions, especially the most recent probable global threat. Keiko felt pressure to come up with something to justify the development of her group. She hoped that, with a full team, she'd be able to finally make some headway. Until then, every day she struggled to push back any doubts of failing. Yo, Kay, wanna go to lunch? shouted Brooke, intentionally startling Keiko, whose mug nearly fell off the table as she bumped her desk. Brooke, she shouted, her heart still pumping hard. Oh my god, Kay, I thought you could that time. You should have seen your face, priceless, said Brooke as she doubled over in laughter. Keiko collected herself and shook her head. Yeah, you got me. Do you want to see if Jackson and Romero want to join us for lunch? Heck no. They probably ordered some pizzas since they never leave their desks. Come on, Kay, if they come, what the heck are we gonna talk about? Encryption codes and cybersecurity. Forget it, let's go. Keiko agreed, and the two made their way down to the building's cafeteria for a quick bite. When they got their lunch and sat down, they'd planned to eat quickly and get back to work. Instead, they were interrupted by someone they'd never expected to see again. Keiko Yumek O'Carter, said Agent Martin as he pulled over a chair and sat down. How are things? Totally caught off guard and not knowing what to say, Keiko just sat there in disbelief. Only a few seconds passed as old, unpleasant memories about her supervisor flooded her mind. Brooke, on the other hand, was quicker to respond. We're just getting ready to leave. Let's go, Kay, she said. I wasn't talking to you, said Martin, turning his attention to Brooke. Brooke was about to say something but stopped when she looked at his eyes. Inexplicably, what she saw frightened her. She tried to stand but couldn't will herself to move. What do you want, Martin? Asked Keiko. We really don't need to do this, do we? 
Agent Martin smiled. Oh, yes, yes we do. You see, there are just too many questions I need answers for. Answers that only you can provide. Keiko glanced at Brooke and wondered why she wasn't engaging in this little confrontation. She remembered how Brooke had bragged about what she would say to Martin if she ever got the opportunity. Still, she sat there quietly as if she were transfixed by his presence. If you really need to talk, we can set up a meeting later. As for now, I'm busy. I have a new department and currently, your will is much stronger than that of your friend here. But a strong mind will take you only so far, said Martin. Keiko cocked her head. What are you talking about? Hmm, a meeting? Yes, set up a meeting. That's a great idea. We need to talk in private. Keiko nudged Brooke. We gotta go. She stood and expected Brooke to follow suit. When Brooke didn't move, she nudged her friend again. Let's go, Brooke. Sit down, said Agent Martin softly, but with authority. Before Keiko knew what she was doing, she found herself sitting back down. As she wondered why she had obeyed, she looked at Brooke again. Something isn't right here, she thought. Something was definitely wrong. I just want to see who I'm dealing with before our meeting, said Martin. Keiko willed herself to stand up but couldn't move. She glanced at Brooke, realizing they were both in danger. She found the inner strength to rise from her chair, grabbed Brooke by the arm, and lifted her up. Agent Martin folded his arms and nodded. Impressive. What? What happened? Asked Brooke, snapping out of it. Keiko didn't say a word but practically dragged Brooke out of the cafeteria, getting weird stares from everyone they passed. K. Keiko. What's going on? Once they were outside the cafeteria and Agent Martin was no longer in sight, she released Brooke's arm. I don't know how, but I think Martin just hypnotized us. What? Brooke nearly shouted. Stupid Martin? No way. He just sat down, said hello, and you freaked. What's wrong with you? You had the perfect opportunity to rub everything in his face, and you just ran away. Keiko couldn't believe what she just heard. It was as if Brooke had completely lost track of what had happened in between Martin sitting down and Keiko grabbing her by the arm to leave the table. It was just Martin. Brooke said softly, guiding her friend to the nearest elevator. She was obviously concerned about Keiko, since she thought Keiko had acted weird around her old supervisor. Keiko remained silent and allowed Brooke to guide her back to her office. All along the way, she replayed in her mind what had happened in the cafeteria. First, she knew she hadn't imagined the events. Brooke was experiencing a memory lapse. Second, she knew how Martin acted and talked. After all, she'd spent so much time working with him. This Martin didn't act or talk like the person she knew. It was as if he were a totally different person. If it's not Martin, then who is it? She wondered but immediately dismissed the thought. She finally concluded it was Martin that somehow unnerved her. But the only thing that didn't make sense was how Brooke lost track of time and how she felt forced to sit down when Martin told her to do so. Everything screamed hypnotism, but there were too many holes with that theory. Within minutes, they were both back in Keiko's office and Brooke was looking at her friend for an explanation. Seriously, Keiko, I just don't. Excuse us, said Agent Romero with Agent Jackson at his side. We have a problem. Brooke rolled her eyes. Seriously? We're in the middle of a meeting. Is it really that important that it can't wait until we're finished? She said, agitated. No, I am. I can't wait, said Agent Romero without hesitation. We've uncovered some serious cyber activity. Keiko completely pushed aside her thoughts 
and focused on her two direct reports. Did you contact the appropriate agencies? Asked Keiko. Yes, ma'am, said Agent Jackson, stepping forward. But currently it's not coming from U.S. soil. It seems to be unrelated to any known terrorist groups. So, it's a current non-threat observation, said Brooke. Yes, said Agent Jackson. Keiko shook her head. So, what's the problem? If the activity is a non-threat issue, then what's the issue? Jackson looked at Romero. Ma'am, said Romero, the activity was redirected back to us to investigate. Are you kidding me? said Brooke in disbelief. We're not even active department yet. We have too many missing key positions to be considered viable. Keiko held up her hand to bring order in the office. Why? What was the explanation to activate an inactive department? She asked both agents. It comes straight from the director. He said the trace led back to a specific site in Canada, that you have currently filled your cyber task force positions to perform a specialized investigation and to call them directly for more details, said Romero. I find it interesting the Canadians didn't jump on this. Brooke said to Keiko, I'll find out why when I talk to the director. Keiko responded. She paused before continuing. All right, since this is our show, I want you to update me on what you uncovered and what's your plan of attack in 30 minutes. She motioned for the two to leave her office. After they left, Keiko looked at Brooke. I guess we're a partially active group now. I need you to refocus on those two now and make the remaining interviews your secondary priority. Not a problem. Brooke said as she turned to leave the office. She stopped abruptly. Without turning around, she said, We still need to talk about Martin and we have a chance later today. Keiko watched Brooke leave and took a deep breath. She had almost completely forgotten about what happened in the cafeteria. Looking at her desk phone, she saw a blinking red light indicating that someone had left her a voice message. Thinking that it was the director, she picked up the phone and accessed the message. Hello, Agent Carter. I hope all is well. It's Pastor James from North Dakota. I know it's been some time since we last talked, but I just wanted to say that. Well, you're in spiritual danger. I can't really go into detail over the phone, but I suggest you give me a call. If you aren't comfortable doing that, I'll understand. I also want you to know that I'm praying for you and that God will protect you from the darkness that's turned its eye toward you. Take care and God bless. Keiko put the phone back on the hook, grabbed her forehead with her hand, shook her head, and wondered what else was going to happen. At that very moment, Pravis entered her office. Pravis was in his astral form, invisible to human eyes. He looked around the department office and saw that everyone else was distracted. He then turned to Keiko and smiled. Knowing that she was one of those rare individuals with a strong will, he was going to cherish possessing and breaking her. Pravis knew she wasn't aware of his presence, which would make entering her that much easier. Feeling that this was going to be the end of his menial fact-finding task, he approached Keiko with much anticipation. You're all the same. You think you're in control of everything in every situation, but you delude yourselves. No matter what you do in this feeble existence, you're never truly in control of anything, said Pravis. Pravis took a step toward Keiko. Old, said a voice directly behind Pravis. Whirling around, Pravis viewed an angel standing with a sword drawn. The angel looked familiar, but Pravis couldn't place exactly who he was. Pravis was a powerful demon, a match for any angel, but he didn't want to take any unnecessary actions until being sure he could prevail. I am Pravis the Minor, chosen associate to the inner circle of six, 
and with authority from Rays, Syriasis, and Fasa. Who are you? asked Pravis. The angel smiled. Those three I know. You, on the other hand, have you not. But you seem to be proud of your title, vile one. Why not say Pravis the deceiver rejected and cast down from heaven? It suits you better. This one is mine to do with as I please, said Pravis angered. She's not marked by your god. I'm fully within my right. The angel tilted his head up slightly as if listening to something, then looked back at Pravis. He seemed to glow even brighter as he addressed Pravis. Yes, I sense much hatred and wickedness in you, meaning you have nothing but malcontent for this one. Therefore, I cannot let you touch her. You are right, dark one, by saying she is not marked, but one of God's own is interceding for her, praying for her at this very moment. So she's protected from your touch, said the angel. You wish to test my power? Pravis screamed at the angel. He was so close to achieving his goal, only to be stumped by someone interceding for Keiko. It shall be no test at all, responded the angel as the light that emitted from him increased to unimaginable levels. For I, Michael, servant of the one true God, shall smite you where you stand if you proceed any further. Pravis shrieked in horror as the light from Michael blinded and assaulted his senses. He was no match for the archangel Michael and would surely meet a horrible ending if he proceeded. Facing more than he could bear, Pravis was forced to flee before the power of the archangel. He disappeared, shrieking and howling, threatening to inform the six of Michael's intrusion. I'll kill you. When I return, my legion will rip your wings from your back. One day she won't be protected, and on that day you can't protect her, I'll be there to destroy her soul. He shouted and hissed at Michael. Pravis knew that, sooner or later, Whoever was praying for her would slip up, either forgetting to pray or figuring that it wasn't necessary to continue praying when only a few times was enough. And on that day, he would pounce. The intense light around Michael was scaled back to a glow as the threat diminished. The archangel turned to Keiko and placed his hand on her shoulder. You are truly blessed to have one of God's own interceding for your protection. You have no idea how close you came to the day of your reckoning. In a flash, Michael disappeared no longer necessary. Keiko looked at the phone again and decided that she needed to contact the director immediately. If someone wanted to pray for her for whatever reason, then who was she to discourage that? However, there were more important things she needed to handle, and talking to the pastor wasn't high on her list of things to do. Picking up the phone, she called the director and spent several long minutes getting all the details. She pleaded that her group wasn't fully staffed and wouldn't be able to respond to this investigation the way she knew her group would have been able to if all positions were filled. The director ensured her that he knew the situation but still wanted her group on the case. He didn't expect much to come out of it. While Keiko knew she had the director's support, she also knew that the director was a man that expected results. He had no problems in testing the limits of the people underneath him. After the phone call, she looked through her office window and saw Jackson and Romero working feverishly at their computers while Brooke was at her desk going through some papers. Images of her interaction with Martin flooded her mind again. She tried to remain focused on the task at hand, but continued to remember her feeling of helplessness around the man and how Brooke had been put into a trance. A wave of nausea slowly threatened to take residence in her stomach. She was running away from her fears and didn't settle this encounter with Martin. Never in her life had she run from any situation. She always moved forward, handling anything that was thrown in her direction. Of course, she wasn't going to jump into any situation without thinking it through, but she needed to tackle this problem head-on without hesitation. 
Looking at her watch, Keiko realized that she had 15 minutes before the meeting with Romero and Jackson. However, she quickly typed an instant message to Brooke, stating that she would be back within the hour since she was to pay Agent Martin a surprise visit. From her office, Keiko saw Brooke read her message and immediately turn around. Keiko motioned that she would explain later and left the department. It seemed like a slow walk to her old group as each footstep contacted the floor with a resounding thud. She was feeling extreme apprehension in meeting him but still moved forward. There was no way she was going to let the sun set on this situation, with her wondering what had happened in the cafeteria. One way or another, she was going to get her answer. As she made her way into her old group, she focused on Martin's office, ignoring the glances and stares from her old associates. Some that knew Keiko from before recognized that serious look on her face and knew something was up. When she got closer to his office, she noticed that he was staring directly at her from his chair, as if he had been expecting her visit. His eyes seemed cold and lifeless as she opened the door without bothering to knock. Entering the room and closing the door, she suppressed the urge to shiver as a chill seemed to run through her body. Why are you here? Asked Pravis with suppressed anger. He just had his butt kicked and didn't want to be reminded of his humiliation so soon after the fact. Pravis waited nervously for Michael to appear again. When the Archangel didn't show, Pravis wondered if he was free to do whatever he wanted to do with Keiko. Caution won out when he decided that Michael could appear at any moment. Pravis assumed that, since she'd approached him for some specific reason, it was somehow allowed to play out, within reason of course. If Pravis made any wrong move, there was a high probability that Michael would return and leave a more lasting bruising than just a burning light. Keiko folded her arms across her chest before responding. What did you do to Brooke, John, she said, ignoring the proper way of addressing an agent. I know we've had our differences in the past, but what you did today was totally out of line. Pravis stared at the woman, imagining all the things he could do to her to destroy her soul. Instead, he just shrugged Martin's shoulders. Keiko ignored Martin's aloofness and continued. Let's just get this all out in the open and off the record. I think you're an embarrassment to the Bureau and a self-centered, egotistical little man hanging on to whatever little power you managed to grab in your pathetic life. You try to tear people down because of your insecurities about how you think others view you, and you keep an air of misguided relevancy in your own mind. You're pathetic, John. Sooner or later, it will catch up to you," said Keiko in total control. It felt good to finally tell her old supervisor how she felt about him. Pravis waited calmly until the verbal assault was over. Keiko Yumeko Carter, are you still interested in me answering your question? Or would you like to insult John Martin some more? Fine. Did you hypnotize Brooke? What did you do to her? I see. You're wondering if you imagined it all? That he just freaked out when I sat down and said hello, said Pravis. I know I didn't imagine it. I know your suggestions carried more weight than before you. Pravis was starting to lose his patience but remained calm. No, it wasn't hypnotism. Keiko, you mech o Carter. Brooke's mind is just a bit weaker than yours. Or did you forget how you were controlled for a while? Keiko stared at Martin in disbelief. He wasn't talking like the man she'd spent so many hours with in the past. She tapped into what she remembered from her psychology classes and realized that Martin was exhibiting strong indications of harboring another personality. There was even a time during this conversation when he'd addressed himself in the third person as if it wasn't currently him. But if that were true, this personality seemed more powerful 
and in control than Martin ever was. Did this personality possess the power of suggestion? Pravis continued. You did say this is off the record, right? Not hearing the question, Keiko continued to reason what was unfolding in front of her eyes. She realized that if she was right about Martin, then he was a liability to his department and the Bureau. He would have to be relieved of duty immediately, but she had to be 100% sure first. Are you listening to me, Keiko Yumeko Carter? You weren't hypnotized. You were simply told what to do. Who are you? Asked Keiko, unable to contain her curiosity. Why, I'm John Martin. You don't believe that, do you? You're quite perceptive, said Pravis. A thought sprang to Pravis' mind. If he played this right, he could still get the information he sought without invoking Michael. Even though Keiko had a rare intellect for a human, Pravis had been at this level of deceit for several millennia. He needed only positive confirmation of what he already had an idea was the truth. When he talked to the three, he wanted to present only 100% verified information. You're not well, said Keiko. I really don't know how you did what you did to me and Brooke, but right now it doesn't matter. You need help. You think I have a split personality? Asked Pravis. Keiko remained silent, trying not to provoke Martin. Unfortunately, her silence gave rise to something else she never expected. Martin started laughing uncontrollably. I thought you had figured it out, but you have no clue. Do you? Asked Pravis. You see, this has nothing to do with the cafeteria today, but everything to do with you contacting the IC some time ago. You thought you could keep that little bit of information to yourself and not put it into any of your reports, but this is the Bureau, Keiko Yumeko Carter. We know everything. Curious to know how much Martin knew, she asked the next logical question. And what do you know? Pravis smiled. As you wish, but when I'm done, you won't look at me as the possible schizophrenic anymore. You're really the one who is the borderline wacko here, anyway, Pravis said, waving his hand to show he wanted to continue. It's no secret that you struggled with the information you discovered about GeneX. With the amount of information you acquired, you had no choice but to contact IC. No matter how far-fetched it may have seemed, you had to report this information. It was your duty, but it didn't end there. Secretly, you battled with what Prophet Barabbas called symbiote. The possibilities had far-reaching implications that your mind had problems accepting. Something that couldn't be analyzed and studied through normal physical tests and laws. Something not fully tangible in the physical realm. So you kept it to yourself and tucked it away. Slowly it faded from your memory as a faraway area of gray, always there, but always ignored. As you gained the respect and recognition you've always known was your destiny with a new title, department, and direct reports, you figured the information submitted to the IC was credible enough to continue your search for those responsible for maybe turning GeneX into a biological weapon. Never once did you fully question the validity of GeneX because of the wealth of data you found to support it. That's the only reason you contacted IC. But how would it look for your career if you also informed them about the possible influence of a spiritual being behind this? The connection was right there in front of you to put together. But you failed to do so because it just didn't add up. How would a symbiote know about the eventual global destruction of all human life? How would a symbiote know about a biological weapon being developed to wipe out the pestilence on this planet called mankind? And how would a symbiote know such future events? It made no sense, so you kept it to yourself. Pravis leaned closer, enjoying the shocked expression on Keiko's face. He continued, But the Bureau knows. But I know. 
We're keeping an eye on you, hoping that this symbiote confusion in your head doesn't become a liability. They think you're an invaluable asset, but I know better. You're a time bomb filled with contaminated thoughts you've acquired during that case in North Dakota, waiting to explode. And you call me crazy. You got nerve. Travis leaned back in the chair and waited. His truths mixed with half-truths and lies were just enough to elicit a response from the woman. Within a few seconds, Pravis figured he would have his confirmation from Keiko's lips. For the first time in a very long time, Keiko felt completely exposed and vulnerable. Somehow, Martin had figured out something she'd shared with no one. Those thoughts and conflicts she kept internal and had allowed only a small portion to leak out to Brooke. Looking away from Martin's stare, she tried to gather her wits to come back with some way of dismissing what he just said. But the wounds that were caused by being so completely exposed were still too fresh for her to refute. How did you know? She asked, dejected. How did you figure it out? Finally, Pravis thought. Gaining complete confirmation of why the Genoverian project had failed, Pravis' task was complete. The only thing he had to do was to report back and then return to his normal role as overseer. However, as he looked at Keiko, he desired nothing more than to do to her what he had done to Martin. He didn't want to take the chance. Smiling, he realized the doubt and uncertainty he'd seated in her would have to do. It wasn't hard. Keiko, you met O. Carter. You wear it on you as a disease, open for all to see and to shun. How else do you think someone like me could have figured it out? Everyone else was either not paying attention, didn't care, or just needed you to carry out your job, hoping it wouldn't affect your effectiveness here. Pravis lied. Unseen to Keiko, Pravis ripped himself from Martin and stood before her in his astral form. He watched as the horrible separation, which tore pieces of Martin's soul from him, caused Martin's eyes to roll up into his head and his body to fall limp to the floor. Waiting for Martin's breathing to finally stop, Kravis reached down into the dead body and pulled Martin's spirit from it. Staring at the demon in complete shock, Martin was unable to mutter a word as Pravis' hand went completely around his neck, causing indescribable pain. Pravis looked deep into Martin's eyes. We have a long overdue appointment with my three superiors. You mean of them as voices one, two, and three. And they're not going to be happy about what I have to tell them. You will wish you were never born. Without further hesitation, Pravis and the spirit of Martin disappeared. Slow to respond, Keiko watched Martin inexplicably go into shock and fall limp to the floor. Her mind was still reeling from what had come from Martin's mouth. It was only after a few seconds, which felt more like an eternity, that she slowly moved toward the body and fell for a pulse. There was none. Years of training took over as she dashed out of the office, screamed for someone to phone for the paramedics, and rushed toward the closest automated external defibrillator, or AED. Running back to the office with the AED, she attached the unit to Martin and tried to start his heart. After the third time with no success, she moved back from the body and stared at Martin. What the hell is happening, she thought, from the weird events in the cafeteria, to Martin revealing how much he knew about her, and to his abrupt death, nothing made any sense. She caught the hand on her shoulder and a voice behind her. Unable to move, she felt herself being forced back, away from Martin, as a paramedic started to work on him. The paramedic who had moved Keiko tried to get as much information as possible from her before asking her to leave the room. Outside the office, she stood with the rest of the agents watching the paramedics performing basic tests to confirm that Martin was dead. 
Keiko heard some ridiculous whispers, saying that she finally got back at Martin, while others said that she downright killed him with her words. When the paramedics finally wrapped Martin in a body bag and strapped into a carrier to take him away, she turned around and left the department, ignoring everyone's questions of what happened. It was a slow walk back to her department. She went straight to the break room and made herself a cup of coffee. As she drank the bitter beverage, she began to wonder if what Martin had said was right. Was she the one that was truly losing her mind? Had she imagined what happened to her in the cafeteria? And how did he know about how she felt after the North Dakota case? Hey, Keiko, said Brooke. How's it going? She asked as she walked into the break room. Brooke looked at the cup of coffee and knew Keiko wasn't doing well. She never drank coffee. We all heard about Martin and that you were there when it happened, said Brooke, pausing to see whether Keiko would fill in the blanks. When she didn't, Brooke continued. Um, you want to talk about it? Here, let me take that from you, said Brooke as she took the cup of coffee from Keiko. You don't need to start any bad habits. This stuff really isn't good for you. Stains your teeth, trust me, I know. Keiko looked at Brooke. For the first time since they met, Brooke thought she saw a tear forming in Keiko's eyes. Keiko rubbed her eyes and took a deep breath. Martin's dead, Keiko mumbled. Brooke nodded. Yeah, I know. She knew Keiko was dealing with some internal conflict and needed time to work it out. In their profession, they were around death often, so the fact that Martin died in front of her wasn't entirely what was bothering her. It had to be more. Until she opened up and talked about it, all Brooke could do was to support her as best as she could. Look, said Brooke, why don't you let me run the meeting while you take some time to yourself? I'll update you on what the twins came up with. Twins? Asked Keiko. Um, Romero and Jackson, you know, men in black. The twins? Sorry, bad timing. You take your time. Brooke rubbed Keiko's arm and proceeded to leave the break room. Wait, said Keiko. I'm no good staying here going over things in my head. I'll deal with all of this later. Tell Romero and Jackson I'll be there in a few minutes. Brooke looked at her friend. She knew Keiko was really hurting bad inside and she couldn't remember ever seeing her in such a state. Brooke also knew that Keiko was an extremely strong person of mental fortitude. She would find a way to handle any tough situation. Brooke just hoped that whatever Keiko was going through wasn't the one thing that would break her. Okay, 15 minutes at the cyber station. Brooke said, giving Keiko one last look before leaving. Not watching Brooke leave, Keiko remembered the dream she'd had during her case about Prophet Barabbas and how she treated it as just a dream. She pretended that everything was right with the world and the similarities between the dream and what had actually occurred were only coincidence. However, the events that happened today were more than coincidence. They were credible events that took place and couldn't be explained away as a dream, a vision, or a hallucination. It actually happened. Keiko looked at her watch and wondered how much time had passed since Brooke left. Taking a deep breath, she walked back to her office and sat at her desk. She could see Brooke looking through pages, so Keiko figured she still had a few minutes. Her thoughts traveled back to what Martin had said to her before he died. How did he know those things about me when I told no one? She mumbled. It's not possible. There must be a logical reason as to how he knew. Anxiety was beginning to rise within Keiko but she was able to squash it before it manifested. She took several deep breaths and tried to focus her mind on what questions she could answer. However, 
Since none of these events possessed any logical explanation, she stored it away for further deliberation. Obsessing over something that couldn't be answered was a sure way to destroy any possibility of finding a solution. Being consumed tended to blind the investigator to seeing the plain and simple truths around them. What she learned in this profession was that becoming obsessed was a sure way to get it all wrong. Keiko looked at her hands, they weren't shaking any longer. She took another deep breath and looked up from her desk. She saw Brooke standing by the other two agents, and every once in a while glancing over in her direction. Realizing that more than 15 minutes must have passed, Keiko stood up, mentally confirmed that she was yet again in control, and walked over to the cyber station. When she approached the three, she nodded and motioned for them to get started. Brooke looked at Romero and Jackson. Well, you got the floor. What you got? Jackson started talking first. The location is Alberta, Canada, in the Grande Prairie region. The complex the internet noise came from belongs to a multi-billionaire named Matthew Bouchard. Complex? Asked Brooke. Yes, complex, Agent Jackson confirmed. He has quite a sum of money and is very adept at hiding his true assets from prying eyes. Well, probably not from his country, but definitely from us. He's a multi-billionaire recluse that likes to seclude himself from the outside world. He has a very large, fenced-off, well-staffed, and self-sufficient complex that he calls home. From inside this place, he's able to run his business. And what is his business? Asked Keiko. That is classified by the Canadian government. He seems to have their full support in the business he conducts. Probably why they didn't want to get their hands messy in investigating the events occurring over the past several days. They want to continue to show a level of trust in him. Sounds like he's deeply involved with many government contracts, said Keiko, noticing Brooke nodding in agreement. Continue, she said to Agent Jackson. Despite his stature and importance, the Canadian government were very worried when they were made aware of the abnormal events emanating from his complex. As they put it, this is outside the normal character of Mr. Bouchard. They didn't elaborate. So Agent Romero began an exhaustive character investigation on him, said Agent Jackson, looking from Keiko to Brooke. What would you like to hear first? The internet noise or what we found out about Mr. Bouchard? Agent Jackson asked. Let's start with the man first, Keiko responded. It'll add a nice foundation before you tell me what's he been up to. Yes, ma'am, Agent Jackson responded quickly. Damn, these guys are so formal. It's driving me crazy, Brooke thought. Romero took over the discussion of Bouchard's character. I was able to put together a synopsis of Matthew Bouchard with links to where I've acquired the information if you wish to investigate later. Anyway, Bouchard is extremely intelligent, self-focused, and self-indulgent in his thirst for knowledge. Intelligent in that he started several companies from scratch while using that front for government contracts for blacklisted projects. He's self-focused because the only person he truly trusts is himself. He believes that the human species has an inherent nature for greed and that everyone is out to advance themselves at the expense of others, which will lead to the eventual decline in morality and cessation of civilization as we know it today. He secludes himself because he doesn't wish to personally witness this de-evolution of mankind. And he's self-indulgent in his thirst for knowledge, basically because he considers himself an intellectual with an open mind to logically precise information outside the norm of practical thinking. Excuse me, said Brooke, confused. Sorry, that was a direct quote, said Romero. He likes to intellectually investigate unusual hypotheses, theories, and postulations. Knowing that there are truths and lies in all things, 
He wants to decipher what is the truth and what isn't. And remarkably, he has been spot on about many things. Once he finished his research and came to a sound conclusion, he would write and publish a research paper under an alias. In his mind, it's hit another contribution from him to mankind. So, are we dealing with a fledgling charismatic cult leader in the works, like Prophet Barabbas? Asked Brooke, looking at Keiko. Keiko's mind was so focused that she didn't allow the name of the cult leader to bring back any uncertain feelings. That's yet to be seen, but we'll keep the possibility on the back burner for now. Is that all, Romero? Asked Keiko. Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you, said Keiko to Agent Romero, as she focused on Agent Jackson. All right, now please tell us about the internet noise. Agent Jackson nodded. The internet noise comes directly from Mr. Bouchard's complex. It seems as though there's a lot of internet activity originating there that's trying desperately to cover its footprints. When I say footprints, I mean tracks. We live in the past and in the present. Someone in there doesn't want people to know what they're doing. Excuse me, Brooke interrupted, but doesn't Bouchard do blacklisted work for his government? Yes, he does. Agent Jackson responded, but don't forget what Canada said about this activity, that this is outside the normal character of Mr. Bouchard. But that's not the entire story. Bouchard has been exhibiting extraordinary cyber skills with his ability to hide his tracks. If not for the rather sophisticated cracking of these cover-ups, which is the noise we're talking about, nobody would have been the wiser. But the most fascinating thing is we have no idea how it was cracked and who did it. If it was from some government cyber attack, there's always some residual clues that would lead back to the originator. But this attack against Bouchard was spotless. Now, when I say spotless, I mean there were no residual tracks. Everything leaves tracks, it's a constant norm. So we normally just have to try to figure out what to look for. In this case, either it doesn't exist, or it's decades ahead of our ability to decipher. Now I know why Canada wanted us, said Brooke. We have some of the most sophisticated counter-cyber-terrorism departments on the planet. They're concerned about what Bouchard is hiding, but ultimately more concerned about who cracked his coverage and what they found out. But what I understand is, if this is so big, why did IC gave a partially active department the case? Keiko quickly answered Brooke's question. I talked to the director earlier and I will tell you word for word what he said, but basically it's this. There's a lot of doubt and concern about creating our group. Our existence has been challenged and questioned since its conception. The director is feeling the pressure to show the validity of this department and decided, even though we aren't fully staffed, to show the doubters our importance. Needless to say, it will put the naysayers to rest. Keiko looked at Agent Jackson. Whoever cracked Bouchard's cover-up, you're sure it wasn't any government? Both Agents Romero and Jackson shook their heads. To the best of our knowledge, ma'am, there's no possible way. So, you're saying that there's some group out there with abilities greater than anything we've ever seen. More sophisticated than any government, and not a government with advanced abilities, asked Keiko. If such an advanced government ability existed, intelligence from either us or our allies would have gotten wind of it. No, we checked into that, and it's a dead end, said Jackson. It's like magic, said Brooke. Everyone looked at her, not sure what point she was trying to make. Brooke continued, What I was trying to say is that advanced technology will look like magic to those who never saw such a thing before, like airplanes to medieval man, or like a television to the Mayans. What we have here is a group decades ahead of anyone else with unknown capabilities and agendas. And what we have here is the first opportunity to find out what's important to them, 
We have to find out what they needed to know about Bouchard. Keiko knew what Brooke was talking about, but saw the confusion in agents Romero and Jackson. Brooke, I think it's time Romero and Jackson read the classified report on Genesome's groundbreaking science and its link to the most recent possible global terrorist plot.